Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You are about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm your host, Rob Stinnett, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up, man? Hey, man. Uh, good job on that intro. Um, the viewers won't know this, but that did take uh, four tries. And the reason it took four tries is because in the back of my mind, I was like calling it the meaning of the movie. But we're not talking about a movie today. We are For not talking about a movie today. For the first time in MOTM history, we are talking about a TV show. Uh, and not just any TV show, the phenomenon Stranger Things. Stranger Things. And I, w- I was the one, as often happens, where I'm like, Andrew, we need to talk about this for our viewers, for ourselves, because I think there's a lot of meaning here. And so I want to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to jump in. I was a little hesitant because I was like, this isn't a movie. Are we going to crack open the can of worms that is talking about TV shows? But once I got through the, the first half of season four, this volume one of season four, it's like, man, we got to talk about this. This is just like it's such good storytelling. It's a ton of fun. Um, how do you feel about Stranger Things overall, Rob? Like, I know it came out, what, like five, six years ago when it started? Like, you're kind of an 80s guy. So uh, what's your uh, relationship with Stranger Things? If there's a Venn diagram of everything I care about and the center of that circle is probably Stranger Things. Like it checks <laughs> it checks every box for me. Like it's just like it's very rooted in Stephen King, who we haven't talked about a ton in this podcast. Yeah. But as an author, that means a lot to me. And um, his stories are influencing all the seasons, particularly the first season. Even the font of Stranger Things looks like a Stephen King book cover. And then it also has like this Amblin vibe that i just love which is like kids on bikes with flashlights um that sort of vibe (laughs) is like so good and so i remember being so jazzed when i first saw the first trailer i would like literally not to be this guy but there were like 500 likes on the stranger things facebook page when i first liked it and decided to follow it and i was like i'm buying stranger things stock early on so way before it was cool way before anyone knew anything about it i saw a poster and watched a little teaser trailer, and I was like, I don't know what this is, but I'm in. I'm all, I'm all about it. <laughs> you're, you're like, they made this show for me. They took a picture of the inside of my brain and said, let's make a TV show for Rob. Bro, it's true. And what I found watching that first season was like, hey, this is more than a greatest hits album. Where it's like, hey, we're referencing E.T. and we're referencing the Goonies. We're referencing it. Like, it does reference all those things. But it's also like, these are fleshed out characters. This is a lived-in world, and this is really competent storytellers who are doing something special. And I think the first season of Stranger Things, I put it up there with, like, first season of Lost, first season of Sopranos, first season of uh, Mad Men. It's just one of those things that's like, oh, this is really compelling, interesting, different television uh, that's doing something special. So how did you feel about season four going into this? Like, how is the series aged for you? So, I mean, season one I loved, and then season two I thought lost its way a little bit. They they were kind of like, hey, we're trying to, like, do something cool or whatever else. Season three I thought, like, regained its footing and told a really interesting story. And then season four I was genuinely curious about because it's another pandemic movie where it's like, hey, this is a show that was supposed to, like, premiere into 2020, and it gets pushed all the way to 2022. Top Gun Maverick, the same thing happened with that, where it was like, hey, it's supposed to come out, and it keeps getting pushed back. Yeah. Um, And I think what's at stake with Stranger Things is these are children who are literally growing up before our very eyes. 
So it's like, we've got to go and, like, tell this story before they're, like, 35-year-olds, you know, working at a yeah. DMV. Like, it's like, you need their childhood because that's the fuel, that's the engine that fuels the story. So I was really, really excited. But I was also like, I don't know, man. I don't know how they keep it going. They're not kids anymore. And the fact that they're not kids, is that going to, like, make the show lose its magic? So I think sure. that's how I felt going into the season. How did you feel going into it? So I feel like I felt the same way about season one as you. Now, granted, as you know, people, longtime listeners of this podcast will know you love 80s stuff. And I'm like, Meh, I wasn't alive. So I don't have the same kind of like fondness. But it sucked me into why people love the 80s watching season one of Stranger Things. You're right. It has that like E.T. or Goonies. It was tapping into a very specific kind of movie, which was the like the kids on bikes movie. Right. Everything that is joyful and nostalgic about that is what season one tapped into and created something really magical with. And I honestly think season two did a similar thing. It was capturing the same kind of mentality and whether or not it achieved it at as high of a level we can, you know, is up for debate. But it was still trying to do like the same kind of thing. Young kids on bikes trying to, you know, have their own little adventure in a world where adults are pretty much ignoring them. And then season three came along and you're right, they're growing up. You can't just keep doing kids on bikes. And I felt like season three, while it was good, it didn't know what it was because you had a bunch of like preteens and there isn't necessarily an 80s genre that fits that genre. You either have kids on bikes or you have the 80s teen genre of like John Hughes movies, right? You've got your Ferris Bueller's, you've got your Breakfast Club, 16 Candles. There's a whole load of like teenager movies that are like really special and really emotional and has that whole niche. But your main kids hadn't entered into that zone yet. So I thought season three was sort of didn't know where to go yet. And I was really thinking that season four, these kids would be old enough that they'd be in like full John Hughes territory and they would have like a really good grounding of genre to slip into. So that was my expectation. And it didn't do that at all. Like, I think this is the first season that feels like fully its own thing. Like, it's just Stranger Things. It doesn't feel to me like it's mirroring anything. It's just fully living in this world that it has created and doing the most with it that it, it can and actually doing a really, really good job. Um, and you, you see that by them pretty effectively telling five full storylines at the same time, which you can't do unless you have a fully built out world. So it went in a, in a different direction than I thought. It didn't go like full John Hughes, which I thought would have been the smart thing to do. And instead, it just owned its own identity, which uh, maybe ended up being more compelling. So for me, I watched the first episode of Stranger Things of season four. Yeah. And I thought, I don't know, has this show like lost it? Because what I loved about the other seasons was Stranger Things was always fun. There was always this kind of wink and nod about what it was creating. It was Hopper wearing a Magnum P.I. t-shirt like or button up shirt like going through stuff. It was like all the kids going to the mall and they're going to like hot dog on a stick and Walden books. And it's kind of this like nostalgic tour through the 80s. And so there was always this kind of like fun center of Stranger Things. Sure. And by the end of that first episode, I was like, this show has lost all its sense of fun. There was a few little moments and a few little laughs and Will's making pop tarts, you know, for breakfast. There were like sprinkles of moments, but I was like, this is not fun anymore. We've kind of lost our sense of fun. So it actually had me really worried that Stranger Things 4 had lost its way 
And and the other interesting dynamic for me, this comes up on the podcast a lot, but like I have daughters. And so I have two daughters who like started watching this show with me. And like, you know, season one is like pretty interesting. And by the way, like what the 80s movies were for me, like Stranger Things is going to be for my kids. Like every kid in their school, like this is not made for people my age anymore. This is made for like high schoolers and middle schoolers. Like they all adore this show and they all consume this show and all my kids friends are watching it. And I remember the fr- end of that first episode of season four and there's a death at the end of the episode. It's and that horrifying. death is like so much worse than any death in the rest of the series. I was like, uh, oh, oh, it's so bad. Literally the show ended and I was like, I don't know if I can keep watching this with my kids. Yeah. You know, and like every parent has to make that decision and you have to know your own kids. And I'm not telling you how to like parent your kids. Sure. I'm saying for me as a parent, I was like, I don't know if I can keep going with this show. I mean, it made my stomach drop. It is so shocking. And I think like in the first season when they I think they like had people's heads explode or something like Elle was like doing some stuff. And there was a lot more blood in the first season than I expected there to be with kids, like with like tiny little children. Yep. But man, that uh, what's her name? Chrissy. When yeah. Chrissy gets possessed and then they, they keep doing it throughout the series. But the, all the broken bones and then ending with the eyes exploding is just it is unnerving. It's a lot. It's not fun. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. Like, so I actually took both my daughters on a walk and I said, hey, what I want to let you know is that like horror movies are like part of my life. I read Stephen King. I kind of watch different stuff. But I was like, I watch it judiciously. Like, I won't just watch a slasher movie. Like, a lot of horror I, like, tap out on. But there's certain things where there's, like, something that is fearful. And I think movies have a lot to say about, like, the fears that we have, about the trauma that we face, about the pressures that we face. And a good story actually uses the tropes and the themes of a horror or a thriller to actually talk about our own fears and insecurities. And so I want to use this show as a chance to, like, talk about those things with you guys. And we'll see if that's what it does. And so I actually had a like dad moment of like, am I going to like put my foot down and let them like not watch this? Or am I going to keep watching it? And I grew up I mean, this is getting super personal now, but I grew up in my own house where my parents were like, no, you can't watch this stuff and kind of shut it off. And sure. as a parent, I get that. But for me, I was like, my kids are going to go and watch this anyway. So what I actually want to do is like use these shows as a way to have conversations about stuff that means the most. I think that that is, I mean, one, the reason that we're doing this podcast, but also there are like really good horror movies. Stephen King specifically has a really interesting relationship with fear and where that comes from and what it is. You and I have talked for hours about it, uh, the yes. movie and the book. Um, you convinced me I was audiobooking everything I was reading several years ago because I had a long commute to work and you convinced me to not audiobook it and to actually read it on the page. And it's the best decision I've ever made. So you and I have a very deep love of Stephen King and his relationship with fear and what that means to our lives. And that is really interesting, that idea of how does that fall into like how you talk to your kids about fear and, you know, when are they ready to sort of engage in that? I I love that. And that Stranger Things is kind of opening that door. I think that's pretty cool. Well, and I want to get back to something you said earlier on, which is like the thing in the 80s were like John Hughes movies. And that's what Mm -hmm. this could have leaned into. And it didn't. It kind of told its own story. And that is true. But there's something very much on the mind of these creators in the show. And that is slasher films, because like one thing that was coming out in the 80s that was for teenagers was we had Friday the 13th. That's we true. had mm-hmm. Halloween. And most specifically, we had Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh-huh. And this show oh, yeah, is yeah. very interested in referencing Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, That's it true. is blatantly referencing Nightmare on Elm Street. 
because what that show or what that movie is about is about kids who would fall asleep and then they would get killed in their sleep. And like, that's where trauma and that sort of thing. And this same sort of thing happens where these kids are falling asleep or falling under a spell or whatever it is. And that's where they're haunted and killed. And so Freddy Krueger is at the front of the mind of these filmmakers in this uh, season four. Honestly, that makes a whole lot more sense of going with like a, a scary genre versus, you know, John Hughes, which is not scary in the least. Um, again, because of my age, I haven't revisited or visited all a really classic 80s horror. I've seen a lot of the Scream movies, which are parodying 80s horror. So I have a general reference point. But Friday the 13th and Halloween and um, Nightmare on Elm Street, all of those, uh, I haven't really seen the originals. So that's a good touch point. And, you know, even introducing all of these these characters that you know are sort of like, how are we going to pick all these people off? You know, there there is the sort of like, and then they were none Agatha Christie element of slasher films in the 80s um, that the introduction of certain characters in this season, you sort of feel like, OK, we're going down that same road. Absolutely. I mean, one thing that like is really at the forefront of the mind is so much Nightmare on Elm Street that like the one guy who gets put in jail and then Nancy and Robin go and they trick that guy into coming and it's kind of a Silence of the Lambs type of scene and they're interviewing that guy and he's Very telling Silence them the whole the backstory of yeah, what's yeah. going on there. Like, And so that kind of Silence of the Lambs moment. The guy who they're interviewing there is Freddy Krueger. And so the actor who plays <laughs> that is actually Freddy Krueger. And That's so they're right. very much like... Um, Robert England plays that guy. And so he's telling this whole backstory of how he got there. And so they're very much like, hey, we're we're talking about Freddy Krueger and we're dealing with this thing. And what's so interesting is like this is meta. Right. And so the characters actually mentioned Freddy Krueger in the midst of it. So they've all seen Nightmare on Elm Street. They're thinking about these things. And then that's actually playing out in their life. And so, again, that's what I like about this show is it like references all these things. But even if you don't catch and pick up on it, like my kids don't know what Nightmare on Elm Street is. They've never seen it. I hope they never watch it. But like if they do, <laughs> they'll like, you know, it's like, OK, there's another layer on that for those sort of fans. For sure. So going through this season, then the fun part about this is it's not even a full season, right? It's just kind of like volume one. And so we're going to get a whole nother batch of episodes here in a few weeks. But up through the first seven episodes of season four, what was the most meaningful episode to you? That's a that's a new category uh, since we're doing a, a TV show. Uh, what was the most meaningful episode? So to me, the most meaningful episode was episode seven, where it all comes together, where the whole plot, you kind of realize there's this like orderly who's going through the whole time and he, He's actually kind of friendly to Eleven. You find mm -hmm. out, like, his name is Henry. But there's this backstory mystery of, like, number one who has disappeared. And then in the right. final episode, you realize, like, why he's disappeared. And then what his backstory is that got him there, which is, like, he actually was, like, thinking about spiders and thinking about horrible things. And that's the reason they put, like, kind of this governor thing on his neck that didn't let him use his powers anymore. His whole backstory where you see that all unfold... That's when I was like, wow, that's when I was actually like, Andrew, we have to talk about this because yeah. it was such a level of depth and power. And I talked about it with my kids in the end. And he gives this whole rationale of like why he did it, why he killed all these people. And essentially it's crazy and it's insane. And he talks about clocks and times and he talks about like. We split our hours up into days and our days into weeks and our weeks into months. And he gives this whole like impassioned speech to her. And he's like, 
we're just slaves. It's meaningless. I'm the one who knows the truth. I'm the one who really knows what's going on here. He like builds himself into this godlike sort of thing. And so that's why I did it. And honestly, this is going to get really heavy, but I couldn't help thinking about like the psychopaths who go and shoot up schools when I watch that scene and when I watch that speech. And I think yeah. what's so interesting is like, you know, this show releases a day after Uvalde, Texas, which is about, you know, two hours away from where I live. There's actually a shooting oh out there. And right. so this show releases right after that. And you see all these kids who are killed. And so anyway, like, I mean, this is like as heavy as we've ever gotten in this podcast. Sure. But it is asking the question of like, what makes these people do something like this? Right. And I think part of it is like you isolate yourself completely and then you put your own narrative together of like why my reality is right. And when you read the like blog posts or you read the, you know, ravings or you see the goodbye letters, right, whatever the manifesto is. Yeah, exactly. There, It seems like often there's a manifesto. And so it usually reads something like this. And I sat down with my kids and I was like, you know, one of the scary things is like these real horrors that happen in the world happen and they don't know why. But part of the reason they happen is because people isolate themselves. And like, I'm not trying to get like political of all the different reasons. Sure. Truly, I don't understand. But this show is wrestling with like, how does someone do something so horrible? What do you have to be thinking to do something so horrible? And the fact that they're touching on this in like a fun nostalgia show, I thought was so fascinating and such a bold, bold step. For sure. So jumping off of that theme for a second and going to just the mechanics of it, this is a part of that reveal that I was actually confused by. How does he have powers? Because they weren't given to him. for any, it, it, it seemed like they were saying that he just somehow was like born with weird telekinetic powers and that the, he was like patient zero and they like used him to create everyone else. Is he so he, is he just like a naturally occurring phenomenon or because I felt like in season one, they had said that like all these babies were like LSD babies or something like taken from parents who had done drugs. And so then they were like testing on the kids and now they're kind of retconning it into something different. Did you understand like why is he a telekinesis guy? Like where did his powers even come from? One word answer unclear. Uh, I think <laughs> I don't think they answer that question really well. Like you said, okay. it's a mid-season snap. And so this okay. almost feels like a lost sort of thing. But I do feel like they have to pay this off of like where he got this powers from. Sure. Or like explain it a little bit more. But essentially like in his backstory, all of a sudden it's like, hey, I found some spiders. And then I realized I could torture rabbits. And then it goes from there. Which again, like to me, it was all a metaphor for like what goes on in the mind of someone like that. But as far as the like mythology of the show... They don't answer that question well. Yeah. It, is it like, is it supernatural? Is he tapping into the upside down somehow? Is it telekinesis? And, you know, like my big question for him was like, why does Dr. Brenner like bring him to the lab? Why it was like, hey, this guy tortured rabbits and killed his family. We should bring him into a lab around children. Like, why <laughs> does he actually put him around there? Uh, because, again, Matthew Modine is the really big, bad kind of right. dark character behind all of this. Yeah, well, he he has been up until th this point, and then this guy is revealed as like, oh, this guy's like a full-on psychopath. Matthew Modine is like an evil doctor who doesn't seem to care about torturing children. <laughs> well, and in fact, part of the thing they're toying with in this season is like, is Matthew Modine good? Is Dr. Brenner actually trying to do something helpful for society, helpful for these kids? Like, yeah. were these kids cast off in a way, you know, like, and again, it's very, very flawed. 
But like, I think what the show is asking is like, is he purely evil or mm-hmm. is there something more going on with him? Right. And I mean, that's part of number one's speech is that villains and heroes, it's not black and white. We're all a mix of both. It's so interesting when horribly evil characters give like these manifesto speeches and like 50 percent of them or more. It's like, oh, no, there's truth in that. <laughs> it makes you feel really oh, yeah. uncomfortable. But it, it makes what they're saying actually kind of matter. Um, that reveal of him being like that big reveal where he's giving all those speeches and all the stories are coming together. And by the way, the filmmaking there of Nancy experiencing it because Vecna is showing it to her at the same time that Eleven is figuring out. And it's like these two storylines like converging through two characters witnessing them. Just masterful. Absolutely. Um, But like the thing that I loved about the reveal is I love when storytellers or filmmakers hide a twist underneath an obvious twist yes so they'll like plant a twist that you see coming so that you think you're ahead so the idea that that like friendly orderly that's how he's credited uh the uh, jamie campbell bauer character the fact that he was like number one you see that coming a mile away Yes. Right. Like as soon as they're like, they're like, who like we all have numbers, but who is number one? And everyone's like, we don't really know. I'm like, oh, it's that guy. Like immediately, you know that. And then when he's like, you know, trying to get her to escape and is telling her that like they're all coming to kill her. I'm like, oh, she's being manipulated. He's actually the bad guy. Right. So I'm sitting there thinking I'm smarter than the show. And I think they do that on purpose so that you have this like surface level twist that you think you're in front of. And by burying that he's actually Vecna underneath that then that surprise hits you like a train because you already think you're ahead and they're like yeah 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 you got those twists but you didn't see this one we were hiding underneath it well it's actually a triple twist maybe it's the plot version of like a triple axle because what the twist (laughs) is there's three twists going on here and we're going into full nerd territory now but if you're listening to this you're probably a nerd already and so welcome welcome to the hellfire club (laughs) oh god But here's the triple twist. One is that he is number one. Like, oh, he's he's not right. just orderly, he's number one. Two right. is that he's Vecna. And so it's like, okay, I can kind of see that as well, whatever else. But three, most amazingly, is he's Henry Creel, who is Victor Creel's son. Yes. Who's the Robert England, Freddy Cougar character. So this backstory from the 50s. Right. He's actually the person who killed this whole family. And Victor Creel's like, no, I didn't do it. But we're like, oh, you really did it anyway. And then they actually show, no, he didn't do it. Here's the real backstory. And so it's like, oh, he's these three characters all in one. And like that triple twist is what was so incredible. You're absolutely right. Right. And it's just like, as soon as you think you're ahead of the game, you're like, I know how this is going to happen. And then they're like, yeah, sure. You got a third of it. It just it's so like rewarding when like you realize there's so much more there than you thought. And it's just like, you know, kind of slaps a smile on your face. And I do agree that filmmaking there is thrilling and it's terrifying. And again, it pays off that initial thing from the beginning of the season, which is that opening scene, which is so shocking. Young Eleven is there. By the way, quick rabbit trail. Yeah. We talk about Young Eleven, which sure. is so amazing that she is like a little girl who looks just like Millie Bobby Brown. Yeah, I, I think they're digitally compositing a Millie Bobby Brown face on her, aren't they? There's some scenes where there are and there's some scenes where they're not. And so there are certain scenes where people are like, oh, that's digitally composited. Like that opening scene of the shot in the beginning. I mm-hmm. don't think it's digitally composited. I think that's actually just her and the way that she looks. 
And so like fans have actually freaked out about it. I'm sure there's Reddit boards, deep dives about this conversation. Even beyond that, the way in which they use the reflections and everything in order to telegraph and tell you that the memory she's having is of her as a little girl, right, is of her as being like small, right, like nine, ten, you know, however old. But then because you're viewing it through Colonel Evans eyes, Millie Bobby Brown as a, you know, 18 year old is playing it. They're probably when they filmed it like 16 or 17. They're not de-aging her, right? They're not like de-aging her performance. They're just letting her do it. But they use that like actress double and, you know, jump back and forth between like shots in the mirror and and whatever to like tell you and set up that like she is young, but we're just going to watch her as an older person play the young version. It's like, it's great. It sets it all up and you don't have to like sit there and watch a de-aged Millie Bobby Brown for an hour and a half of screen time. Yeah, it, it really plays well using like all those sort of things of like, oh, she's really there, but she's also having a memory. And again, like that's why I said my most meaningful episode is that seventh episode, because I was like, that was so satisfying. That was the way that you end a cliffhanger season. Um, when they said they were going to do a cliffhanger, I was like, I'm not too sure. Is this just a <laughs> Netflix money grab? Netflix sure. could use the money right now. Um, but then the way that they actually made this happen was breathtaking and i was like man that was great storytelling that's stranger things climbing to its highest heights in my opinion yeah really really good i think my most meaningful scene was probably the end of the mid season of the mid right so episode four right the middle of this half of a season um which was sort of the end of the max storyline Mm. And I think that episode what with the with the Kate Bush song, I think to me that was such a meaningful episode because I think this season, Max, or at least the first half of the season, um, Max is my most meaningful character, which Absolutely. I was so happy about. I remember when I was watching season three, I remember talking to my wife. I remember like leaning over and being like, Sadie Sink is amazing, right? Like she's this side character, but... She just holds the frame. She's not like big and boisterous like Dustin or like even has all these like emotional performances like Millie Bobby Brown. She's doing something else. But when the camera is on her, I'm all in on her and what she's doing. And so the fact that the Duffer brothers wrote her as kind of the protagonist for the first half of this volume, I was so thrilled by and to see her get to sort of go on this really great journey as a character uh, I loved. Yeah, and we've talked about, like, horror as a metaphor. I also think, like, the metaphor that she's going through is this is a show about trauma. It's a Mm -hmm. show about, like, um, loss. It's a show about depression. And that's what the first, like, everything leading up to that episode was, was, like, when I said it lost its fun, now looking back on it, I'm so glad I did because it's true. Like, she's not having fun. She's not at the Hellfire Club. She's not at the game. She's just kind of like, no, I've seen too much. I've been through too much. And good job on the Duffer Brothers for telling a braver story, which is not like, okay, everything's reset and we're back to summer and everything's okay again and we're going to go on another zany adventure. It's like, no, I lost my brother. I saw something horrible happen and I can't just get past that. And so the fact that they let her live in that space and then have this scene where it's like all these friends who gather around her outside of a grave, outside of her own brother's grave, and then they go and they give her music to snap her out of it. They're actually using art to say, hey, there is more to life. 
there was something worth living for. Like this, that whole scene is really dealing with suicide again. Like mm-hmm. um, that's one of the background themes, at least that I took from it. And so it's dealing with depression. It's dealing with suicide. And then a group of friends who get around her and Lucas has such a powerful line where he looks at her and he says, I see you. Right. I see, you know, and he's saying that and I'm like tearing up just watching it. And I was like, what an incredible thing that these kids are doing. Right. I mean, it will come as absolutely no shock to people who have listened to episodes of this podcast that my most meaningful character is the one who is feeling like horribly depressed and isolated and trying to find a way out of that. Um, because that always seems to be the characters that I'm drawn to. But you're absolutely right in how they use that storyline and that they don't just reset everyone to a happy place, that there is a fallout from what we saw in season three and a meaningful emotional fallout. And this relationship between her and, and Lucas, which has always just kind of been just like a not super meaningful young love high school romance kind of thing, right? Like they both think each other is attractive and they're friends and they're dating. Like that's all that relationship has really ever been. Right. And so to see it in this where like she is broken up with him because she can't deal with her own stuff and he's desperately trying to connect with her because he, you know, as as much as a 16 year old can, like loves her. Right. And they don't know how to like communicate and him like pursuing her and going after her and saying, like, I care about you. I'm not willing to let you sit in this isolation and I'm going to like chase you down so that you don't feel alone. It's just like maybe one of the like best arcs he's had as a character for sure. And she is absolutely magic. I hope that Sadie Sink continues to do stuff and starts starts getting more and more roles, because I think as an actress, she is magical on screen. She is electric. And again, I also really appreciated what they did with Lucas's character, because this is what happens in high school, right? Which is like some of your friends kind of stay at the nerd D&D table, which uh-huh. is where Dustin and Mike kind of belong. Right. And then <laughs> some of your friends, it's like, no, he's a basketball player and he's kind of like going into a different crowd and he wants to be a part of that crowd, but he still loves his own old friends. And so you see that kind of war within him. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's so much more interesting where he has that thing with Max, but even with those other friends, he's like, man, I'm going to be so much more popular here. And I have something that I also love, which is basketball. And I know you guys don't care about it, but it means a big deal to me. And I'm good at this. Yeah. And why can't you guys care about what I care about? And so those tensions that happen in coming of age, I think that's why this show is so interesting to me because it's like part wonder years and part like Stephen King novel, you know, like every year it's like, okay, these kids are growing up. And so they're dealing with problems that they have to deal with as they're getting older. And that's a real problem that does happen in high school. That is a John Hughes movie problem. Right. And I think that that was what season three kind of tried to start doing. Like all the kids are like dating and having hormones and stuff now. And it's sort of just like focused on like the relationship aspect of everything. And like the kids are trying to be cool and Will still wants to play D&D. And they're like, we're all grown up now. We don't do that. And it was kind of I feel like a like a baseline version of what this season did better by putting them in high school and, and giving more well-rounded stakes around this idea of what does it mean to grow up? What are we leaving behind? What are we growing past? Well, what is part of our identity? This idea of like being a part of the Hellfire Club and like these are people who are like me, who love telling stories and that's okay. Yeah, maybe we're all nerds, but like this is a community that I, I love and them all coming around this like basically adult, right? He's been held back, what, like two years? He's So he's probably like a 20-year-old or something. Are, we, are you talking about Eddie right now? I'm talking about Eddie, yeah. L- let's talk about Eddie real quick because okay. let me tell you something, Andrew. In the 80s, every high school in America had an Eddie. This guy <laughs> is more true than any character before or since of Stranger Things. Like, Billy 
was kind of like an amalgamation of a bunch of things. He had a mullet mustache. Nobody looked like that in the 80s. Nobody acted like that really in the 80s. Eddie dude, I was like, I knew that guy. Like, yeah. I literally knew that guy. Like, like hairband. Hairband, a jean jacket vest, like logo t-shirt, like all that sort of stuff. The way he acted, like, I was like... This guy walked onto the screen and is so fleshed out and so realized. Um, and he even kind of does this other meaningful plot, which is like D&D Satanist. Uh, yeah. Like, is D&D satanic and is there a Satanist cult that's killing all these kids versus like, oh, no, it's actually the upside down. But that like satanic panic actually was a big thing in the 80s and it was a big fear. Uh, look at a movie like Dragnet or different movies that yeah. like actually did like... Uh, run through the 80s. I remember when I was younger, I think even up through the end of the 90s, I remember my mom telling me like, hey, if any of your friends are playing Dungeons and Dragons, like you can't because there's demonic stuff in that. And me being like, huh, that's that's weird. I don't. And, you know, none of my friends did. But I remember that being like rooted in my head that like Dungeons and Dragons was like evil. And then now as an adult, it's like, oh, no, this is like a whole like culture of like role play storytelling. There's nothing cultish about this at all. But like, even in like a, a fairly like normal suburb in the 90s, I was told that as a child that like I needed to stay away from the D&D kids. Yeah. And this fever pitch of like there's like a town hall meeting where the people freak out about it. There is the um, jock kids all get freaked out that, oh, my gosh, this is happening. Like that's real. And I was like, what a great thing that actually happened in the 80s. Uh, where there was this kind of real fear connected to people who played D&D. And they're like leaning into that of like, OK, who's good and who's evil? Yeah, which again is one of the things I think this show has now found its own identity. It's using 80s things, it's using the world of the 80s, but it's not so directly mirroring like an 80s genre, right? It's not being kids on bikes. It's created its own identity and is finding things from that time period and storylines and characters and culture to create its own fully realized world. Absolutely. Did you have a least meaningful character? So I I've got a couple um, but I think the most surprising one for me is at this point, I think I am almost the least invested in Eleven's storyline. Mm. I think Eleven is, is becoming maybe not the least meaningful character. I think that very clearly goes to Argyle Man. and we can, and we can talk <laughs> that, about him that later. That is a hot take. Eleven is the least meaningful character. Yeah. That so maybe like not the least meaningful character, but this season has like five separate storylines that are all running simultaneously and rarely intersecting, which I'd love to talk about that form of storytelling, which I think is fascinating. And in order to do it, you have to have a bunch of protagonists and a bunch of anchor characters in order to anchor that kind of storytelling. Um, Game of Thrones famously did it from the drop because that's how the books are written. There's a great show called The Expanse on um, Amazon Prime that also does that where it has completely separate storylines that are telling a singular story, but not ever intersecting. Um, and this is the first time that this show has done it in this way. Um, and I think they have enough characters now that they kind of have to. Um, similar to like Avengers Endgame, right? You, you can't have that many actors and get their schedules to align that you have to write separate storylines in order to film it. I think that's maybe where they were at with Stranger Things. They had so many key characters. Yeah, but... and I think season three started this because yes. like, you know, Hopper and Joyce, they have like one adventure and then Nancy and Jonathan are having an adventure and then right. the kids are in the ice cream shop that becomes the basement. There's kind of a few different ones, but they kind of keep intersecting and then going apart. Right. This one's fully like, 
hey, we're sending you guys to Alaska. You guys are going to Russia. You guys are in Utah and you guys are in Hopkins. Here we go. Like, let's do these stories. And so I think I found that as we were going through it, because they even break 11 out of the California storyline by like episode two. And I think I'm just less invested in her character at this point because I feel like she doesn't have as much growth to do as everyone else because she is the she's not the MacGuffin. That's not right, because the MacGuffin is something that you don't care about. And we care about Elle, but she is at this point almost her powers have become kind of a plot device. And while she was the growth character in season one and had to go from like not even knowing how to speak English to having a friend group. Now she's kind of just like the superhero. And in order to keep her from being overpowered, they have to put her in like stasis to get her powers back. It feels like she's a little bit regressing. I felt like this season, while it's still about her and she's probably the key protagonist of the show, they don't have enough great growth for her to do. Um, She was there to sort of figure out what had happened at Hawkins lab. Like she was a plot device and I found characters like Max and Steve and even Hopper to be much more interesting as like people. And I was invested in what they were doing. Well, I mean, you are right in the sense that like she's there so we can see what's going on with Henry Creel. She's there so we can see what's going on with Dr. Brenner. You know, like she's kind of like the device that is taking us to those characters and she's taking more of a backseat so it can be there. Um, You know, season one, she's E.T. essentially. They're like mm-hmm. dressing her up and hiding her from her parents. And she's very intentionally E.T. Season two, she's more like a superhero where it's like, hey, she has superpowers, but she also has feelings. Season three, it's even more so about like her relationship with her dad and like coming of age. And so like she regressed in this season because she literally had to regress. She literally had to go back to the beginning to like relive all these sort of things. And so it's more of a little bit of like who she is and what's going on. So I do think that's interesting though, because it is like, there isn't much growth. I don't have much invested of like what's going to happen to an 11 as much as I care about like, what's Dr. Brenner doing? Like I'm much more interested in that. And the next episode that's coming up is actually called Papa. Um, and so I'm fascinated with like, OK, what are we going to find out about him and what's going on there? That's interesting. Who is your like least meaningful character? I feel like there's so many characters now that it's this is actually pretty easy to be like, yeah, there's got to be several. So I want to talk about two. I think quickly, like Argyle, like, yeah, he was funny at moments, but a lot of moments where I felt like, oh, we need some fun. We need some comic relief. We're just going to like force him in. And so I would yeah. say his batting average was like 300, which is like great <laughs> for baseball, but it's not good for a show. We're like. Three out of every 10 of his jokes kind of landed for me. And the other, you know, (laughs) most of them, I was like, ah, it's just like he's in like a different show. He's in like something else. He's in like season two or three of Stranger Things. And it's like everyone's dying around him. There's like massacres. And he's like, well, the pizza's late. What's going on? Or that girl's really hot. And it's like, bro, he's in like Fast Times at Richmond High and we're in Nightmare at Belton Street. And yeah. so he's one of my most meaning, my least meaningful characters. <laughs> your most meaningless character? Is that <laughs> what you're about mean- to say? Yeah, new category. <laughs> just just coming really hard for Argyle. <laughs> you ready for my other one? Because this yeah. is a bit more of a hot take. Yeah. Which is... Hot take machine. Hopper. Ooh. Hopper is my other least meaningful character. My wife um, would agree with you on that, actually. And I think why is because they took away everything that's Hopper, like, for the sake of plot. They kind of, like, wrote themselves into a corner which is like, oh, at the end of season three, we killed him. 
there's this letter, like that letter at the end of season three is so beautiful. And the kids are packing up and they're playing the Peter Gabriel song underneath it. And it's just like everything about that, like totally works. And then it's like, oh, we can't actually use him. We're going to bring him back. So that forces them into this whole Russia plot, which is like cool and interesting. Um, But I felt like, what are we really doing here? And what I hated the most was like, you've stripped this man down to like nothing. Like he was always our Han Solo. He was our Magnum P.I. And now he's kind of in this like tortured existential hell. And I'm like, even if they get him out of this place, is he ever going to be back to the hopper that we knew? And so all Mm -hmm. of that together kind of just made me like sad. Like I was kind of thrilled or I was, I was feeling emotional or I was feeling annoyed, but like with hopper, everything, I was just like, Oh, this is sad. And I get it. He's in a Russian prison. How else are we supposed to feel? But I was still like, I'm not sure what the meaning is here. I'm not sure what we're doing other than like, we got to keep hopper in the stories. Let's keep cutting away to Russia. Yeah, I think I feel that I uh, loved his like Russian guard guy. Um, That's I I don't know the name of the actor, but he was a famously also in Game of Thrones and plays a really interesting character there. And he just basically uses the same accent and plays the same character here. He's just a Russian guard now. But I think he chews the scenery so well. He's just kind of an interesting actor. I completely agree with you in the fact that the hopper that we know and love doesn't exist anymore in this season. He's like a stripped down hollow hopper. That does remove some of the joy because I, I loved him in the first several seasons. I was like, I love this guy like David Harbour. Where has he been all my life? Like this guy is great. Um, But I think I liked the like Russian prison plot line enough that I was OK with him being kind of like a hopper version of James Bond where he had to figure out how to break out of the Russian prison and jump on a snowmobile. And like I was kind of cool with the plot line, even though I didn't necessarily care about the characters. Like, I don't really care about Joyce. and I definitely don't care about Murray. But I think all three of those characters, I was like, this is kind of just like a fun Russian plot line to cut to. Yeah, I feel you. And like, I'm not saying bad. I'm just saying like the least meaningful, like the one where I'm like, "Mm, I'm not really sure what was going on here. The truth is, even the Utah stuff, like Mike and Mm -hmm. uh, all those guys, that would be my other nomination. Like, yeah, I'm less invested in like Mike and Jonathan and that sort of thing. Like Mike, I think will come back and be awesome again. Sure. And so I think he's just kind of like put on hold, but he goes and he finds like Dustin's girlfriend and they have to like hack into something. And it was like, I was like, that's fine. But like, that's just a little like zany adventure right here with the Russian storyline. I'm like, I think I'm supposed to like find something deep and meaningful here and like really find something like gritty. And mostly I'm just like, I'm not sure what we're doing other than trying to keep Hopper alive. So I am curious where they're going to pay that off and where it's going to go. Yeah, I think Will and Mike have enough to do in the first few episodes that I was still pretty connected with them. There's some cool character stuff going on with them of like, what does it mean to be friends as you grow apart? What does a long distance friendship look like? Right. Like I connect with that huge. I feel like I'm totally out on Jonathan now. I was pulling for him the first two seasons and I was like, oh, you're a nice guy. And Steve's kind of a douchebag. And so like, yeah, I'm pulling for you to get together with Nancy. Like, I want that for you. I I don't know what Jonathan's doing now. Like for the last two seasons, I kind of like he could kind of ride off into the sunset for me and I wouldn't care. And I was actively pulling for Steve and Nancy to get back together before the show started telegraphing it. I was like, Steve is such a better character now. I'm like, (laughs) I kind of like Jonathan could go away. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're definitely like the writers feel the same way, which is like, hey, we don't want you to like Jonathan anymore. Like Steve is the guy. I mean, the like 
look that Nancy and Steve have, like when they're in the upside down and he's kind of shirtless and he's like finger from the vines. I was like, oh man, this is like teenage chemistry at like a whole nother level. Yeah, I mean, their chemistry is great in a way that Nancy and Jonathan's never has been. Like, Jonathan was great pining over the popular girl that he can never have. But then as soon as they got together, it was kind of like, I don't know that this makes sense to me. But I think one of the reasons why I'm so in, like, Steve's camp now is I love his character arc. Jonathan has kind of regressed, I feel like, from going to, like, wanting something to, like, being lost. And I think that's the fault of the writers, not necessarily a fault of him as an actor. But, like, Steve has gone on this fascinating journey of being, like, Full on douchebag in season one. Right. Like the guy that you really did not like. Right. Um, To having like a little bit of a hero, you know, ending in the way that sometimes douchebags do to then him like regressing to this juvenile state, which is like fascinating to see where he's going now to see the full arc. It's this idea of like he was overcompensating and being the super cool guy who had no depth. And when he realized that he didn't want to be like an a-hole anymore. Then he was like, well, then what does that make me? I have there's like, I don't know. And so what he found was that he just like got along really well with these children. And so he kind of regresses to this really juvenile state and he doesn't know how to plug into the world anymore because he doesn't want to be this vacant, hollow, cool guy. And so he's rebuilding his personality. And in order to do that, he has to like regress to being like a little kid and hanging out with Dustin, which is one of the best plot lines of season two. And now he's actually growing up into a full person after having regressed. And he's a character that you have respect for and you like and is trying to make something out of himself. It's a really cool journey that now I'm kind of like, yeah, like and I feel like Nancy also is like holding her own and is, you know, wants something with her life and is making these really strong decisions. And like, yeah, I I kind of want the two of them to to get together. So I talked about lack of fun in this season, but. Joe Carey, Steve, he is the guy who brings the fun in every single scene. He has this kind of like Matthew Broderick energy, like this kind of like young, super cool, but also like knows that he's flawed. He just like threads that needle so well. And like, I love him. And like Hollywood producers, if you're listening to me, like give Joe Carey some more work. Like he needs to be more than like the backup guy and free guy. Like give that guy his own movie. Give him some A-list stuff. Write a Marvel movie for him. I don't know. Like <laughs> he's he's my favorite like actor of all the Stranger Things cast, and the one who I'd want to see like work the most. Where I'm like, this guy's got the it factor that I think could really happen there. And I think what they've done with the Steve character throughout the show is so fun and so interesting. And he's one of those characters who like, yeah, he's in my top two or three of like. When he's on, I'm not going to the bathroom. I'm not anything else. I'm like locked in. I'm not checking my phone. I'm like, Steve's here. What's about to happen? And I'm either laughing or I'm like marveling at his growth or he's just like such a fun character to take us through. Yeah. Steve and Nancy for all these seasons have sort of been like your like B plot line, right? Your main four kids plus 11 are like your front and center, like main cast, right? Even like with like the billing, right? They're like the first four kids. And Steve and Nancy are like, you know, build seven and eight down. But that Hawkins plot line in season four is like the Nancy Steve plot line. Absolutely. Honestly, once Max goes through her arc after episode four, right, where Max is is the center of it, it really becomes Steve and Nancy's show. Yep. That Hawkins plot line and Dustin and Lucas and even even Max are playing 
a backseat to them, which I kind of love. Yeah, and again, like this is a, you know, Johnny Depp was in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. And so Steve is actually kind of playing the Johnny Depp sort of character where he's like the heartthrob, but also like has a heart of gold. And like that's in it. And like what they're both going through, I'm like, let those two cook. Like, good job, Duffer Brothers, for not like, okay, we've got to make Dustin the center or, oh, Mike, you know, like he's been mm-hmm. the center of every season. So we got to make him the center again. They're like, you know what? Nope, we're going to let Nancy and Steve take center stage and go. And at that moment at the end of episode six, where they acted like they were going to kill Steve, I was like, I know you're not going to kill Steve. I know you would not do that. But if you do, I am leaving this show. Like, I, I know. Friendship over. Right. That ending. And I've been not binging this show. I've been watching one episode a night with like sometimes breaks in between, which, by the way, listeners, I cannot recommend this enough. Um, I wrote a blog post once on the beauty of waiting between watching episodes or waiting between watching seasons and limiting your binge habits because the enjoyment that I know I get from waiting after like a cliffhanger and letting that cliffhanger sit makes a show so much more enjoyable to me. So I ended that night with like Steve getting eaten by bats and like went to bed and like woke up the next day and I was like, man, I hope they don't kill Steve. Like that would actually really hit hard if they did because I'm and and I'm sitting there thinking like maybe that's why they're giving him such an arc. Maybe that's why they're centering on him so hard is so that his death actually hits. God, I hope they don't. But like they might. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that like watching this show slowly and taking a little bit of time makes it powerful. And this is what I love that they've done this season because for the first time in Stranger Things history, they're actually making us not binge. They gave us this whole story, but they did not give us the complete story. So they gave us a very contained tie. I mean, if that's where the season would have ended, I was like, okay, great. But they actually are like, okay, we're going to tell most of a story. And then there's still like two more episode, movie length, quote unquote, episodes that are still coming. Um, And so I love that they did that. And I guess my question for you is, what are you most excited about going into these final two episodes? So I'm excited to sort of see how this whole story ends. I think the Steve and Nancy plot line, like, I think it'd be cool if they get together, though they got to bring Jonathan back into it in order for that to happen. Because if they just get together and Jonathan's like out in Utah, then I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. They got to figure out how to navigate that. So but I'm sort of excited. The romantic side of me is excited about that i'm really just interested to see like where they're going with this whole world with vecna and this kid that he started out as and like i'm invested in all of the these characters and they've all had these separate plot lines and i'm super interested to see like where they go together i want to be on the journey with these guys and i'm kind of just like in it you know wherever they want to take it i'm in I agree. I think for me, I'm most excited to one to see like, okay, the rest of Eleven, like we've talked about her character not being developed as much. Maybe so. But her plot, I'm super interested in of like, okay, that's she's kind of gone on this journey. What's the byproduct of it? One thing my kids keep asking, which is why do they keep closing gates? It doesn't matter. You know, five years later or two years later, one year later, the gates are going to reopen anyway. And so there's no point. But I, I think they should talk about that. Actually own the problem of like Eleven... God bless her. Her nose keeps bleeding. She keeps trying to close these gates and then they keep reopening. And so how is she going to defeat this once and for all? And I think they're going to lean into that. I'm Dr. Brenner. Like I love they brought Matthew Modine back in. And so what his motivation is, why he was doing all this. Is he truly good? Is he truly evil? I'm fascinated in that. And then, yeah, like I guess Hopper and Joyce, like I do hope they kind of bring them back in. And I'm curious, like, can he shed the Russia trauma off him and still be Hopper or is that lost forever? I am 
still kind of, if you're going to bring Hopper back, like bring Hopper back. Like I want to see Han Solo Hopper again. And I, th- I think one of the things I'm interested in, which I don't think they're going to do at the end of the season, by the way, quick sidebar, is there, are they going to shoot a season five before they wrap this thing up? Or is this the last two episodes of Stranger Things ever? They are shooting a season five. Okay. And season five will be the final season. Okay. So there is one more season after this. But one of the things that I love about Stranger Things that I don't think we'll get any new versions of in the the last two episodes, but we might. And that is surprising pairings. And I think the show has done an amazing job of introducing new characters, but then pairing characters together that you never thought you needed together. Yeah, that's a good point. And how surprising that is. I think in season two... Dustin and Steve, like you watch season one and you don't ever think like Dustin and Steve should have a whole plot line together, right? Like you're not thinking that. And that was just like the most fun in season two or even like Eleven and Hopper in season two and three, right? Their father daughter relationship. I'm not watching season one thinking I want that. That's not like the obvious place for it to go, but it was so surprising and so wonderful, right? Like I think uh, Nancy and Jonathan together. Okay, that doesn't sparkle, right? That that pairing doesn't work. But I think this season, the Robin and Nancy together. Yeah, they're like Cagney and Lacey and, you know, right. doing like little detective work. Their, their little detective storylines and how like they completely butt heads at the beginning because they have different personalities and they're just like super frictiony. And then they realize like what a good team they are. Like loved it. Like that to me is where Stranger Things is getting like the fun is when it finds these fun little pairings of like who can we pair together and have like a fun time with. Maybe we'll get a new version if the plots kind of collide back together. That's such a great point. I've always thought of like Dustin and Steve as like, oh, what a surprising pairing. And yeah. like that's magic out of nowhere. But like how often they do that and how often it works is really a testament to these characters and a testament to the writers that these characters are fleshed out and realized enough that when they take one and put them with another, that something new and exciting emerges. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how much of that pairing will get in the new season, although there is this like kind of high school reunion thing that happens at the end of the season, right? Where it's like, okay, now Utah is going to come back and Russia is going to come back and they're going to get all together. And right. what is that going to mean when they come back together? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. When we left everyone, everyone is still kind of still stuck in their area, right? Like they didn't get out of prison. They just killed the Demogorgon. They're still in that Russian prison. I don't know how they're getting out. So I have one more question, which you weren't prepared for this. This is not in the show notes. Oh, but who is the most likely character to die in the second half of season four? Like, who is the most who's on the chopping block? If it's like, OK, I'm taking bets. Yeah, someone has to die. make it out alive. I don't know if someone does, but it feels like someone does. So who's that going to be? Man, I who would I be OK dying? <laughs> I think they can kill Murray and I don't care at all. Um, but it's not going to be like, oh, no, Murray died. Like, how do we keep going? Yeah. I think objectively Joyce or Hopper could die at the end of this season and they would have had completed story arcs and that would be fine. Um, I don't know that they will, um, but I do think specifically Joyce, I feel like they haven't known what to do with Winona Ryder really since season one. Like she's number one on the call sheet, probably. She's the first build in in the show. But after season one, uh, you know, she didn't have the will thing to grab onto. So they've been kind of fishing in the dark for what to do with her. So I think the writers could kind of dispense with her if they wanted to. Um, I think story wise, what makes the most sense would be to kill a character that would really hurt. And I think killing Max would really hurt. I think potentially killing Lucas if he saves Max doing so would really hurt. 
Um, I think there's several characters in that core group that's still in Hawkins. I think they could kill several of them, and it wouldn't be bad storytelling, and it would kind of hurt a lot. Yeah, I don't think they can kill Hopper because that's how they ended season three. And so I don't think they could run that back, even though sure. Hopper didn't die. Yeah. Uh, to me, I'd be like, ah, you've already played that card. That's true. I think my most likely to die is Jonathan. I think Jonathan's going to come back. He's going to discover Nancy and Steve, and he's going to actually do something sacrificial to like save Steve or save Nancy. And he's mm. going to have every reason to turn his back on them. Yeah. He's actually going to do something heroic. Uh, something a lot of shows do is when we run out of story for this character, you've talked about that. We've run out of story. We're going to do something for him. And I think Jonathan is a little dead inside. And so he may like go the way of Barb or something like that and really like ultimately lay his life down for them. Or he may die, but in a way that's like surprising and emotional. Yeah. And like, I haven't read that anywhere, but like if I had sure. to bet money on most likely to die, it would be Jonathan. I don't think you can kill any of the core four. Um, I think Will, like, you can't kill just from the fact of, like, my God, that kid's been through so much. <laughs> anyway, by the way, we is went he, through all of that. What's what's the deal with Will? Is he in love with Eleven and isn't saying so? I don't know, dude. I, because there's I'll like tell this, you who Will is. You think Will is in love with Mike? I do think Will might be in love with Mike. I think who Will is not in love with is his barber who, like, just gives that kid. <laughs> the poor kid, man. The worst haircuts. I mean, he's just like always in the background and always like beat up upon. He's kind of like the Charlie Brown character. Like they really don't know what to do with him. Like they should have like left him in the upside down. He he was so cute and adorable for season and they've just never figured it out. And I think the kid I does think a good season job two, they did a good job of him trying to figure out what to do in the real world. And he was like the conduit for the mind flayer. I thought, That's I thought true. season two, they did a good job. And then season three, he was wasted for sure. I think that they're trying to figure out him as a character of what do I do now that I've been on the outside of this whole thing? And like, yeah, he's, he's the character that just wants and never gets. Yeah. It's just sad. Like I like will, I feel like I'm will in real life where it's like everyone <laughs> else is having an adventure and I'm just sad. I'm like, Hey guys, it's my birthday. <laughs> what about me? You know, <laughs> I need therapy. I've, I've got a lot of sad things. So I don't think will, but that's why I like Jonathan, or maybe like Jonathan. Yeah. Jonathan makes sense. I kind of hope they don't, because that to me is the easiest way to get Nancy and Steve together is by killing Jonathan. And it's the least imaginative way. It's like you ever see the like Michael Bay classic Pearl Harbor with Josh Hartnett and Ben Affleck. Right. Like when you have a love triangle, the easiest way to solve it is to kill one of the characters. And it's the easiest way out as a writer. And so while it would give him something heroic to do, I kind of feel like it's the least interesting version of this love triangle. Of just killing one of them. I've never seen Pearl Harbor, and now you have spoiled it Wait. for me. So great. <laughs> well, I didn't say who died. Uh, I don't. I don't really care. I'll never see that movie. I'm fine right here without it. But going back to the subject at hand, here's the thing: Jonathan Death only works if he finds out about Nancy and Steve. Sure. If she leaves him. And then he still dies. Like, sure. that's interesting. And that's kind of what I predict. The other person that they could kill, which they won't, but could from a business perspective, I think Finn Wolfhard's career is taking off. And I think they could kill Mike if Finn wants out of his contract <laughs> in order to do more movies because he's no longer the star of this show. And I think he could opt out of his his contract and the writers would be OK with it. So business wise, they might kill Mike, but. That's me just shooting in the dark. Do you think he still has a career five years from now? Like, do you think he's still a thing? Or is he sort of like Corey Feldman where he has this kind of like 
golden run and then like he loses his boyish innocence and then it's over that's kind of what i predict for him yeah i'm curious what you think i mean i I think it it depends on how he can transition and if he can you know i think he has to get the right roles and i think doing something like opting out of a stranger things and like finding the right role to try to do something new is is what you would have to do and maybe not even opting out but it, it really is about finding that right transition moment and finding that role that is the magical script that is perfect for you and paints you in a new light. And if he's even even capable of doing it, and I'm not sure that he is, but I do think that he is a more solid actor this season than I think I gave him credit for in previous seasons where he was just kind of like a bratty, nerdy kid. I think that there is a certain amount of emotional depth in Mike and a difference in who Mike is versus the Finn Wolfhard I see in interviews, who seems kind of like a bratty little kid. And Mike in this season is not. And I'm like, you don't seem to be playing yourself. You seem to be playing something else. And that's impressive. That's actual acting. So he may have the chops if he gets the right script, but he's going to need to get it soon before we move on. I mean, I really liked his performance in It. I thought he was great as Richie. Great in in It. it. Really surprising. I would not have cast him as Richie, but like he's he's really, really funny, really good. Um, I thought I liked him in Ghostbusters. You know, he's kind of fun as this kid, you know, as the newer Ghostbusters. So I think he's done good stuff. He's probably the biggest breakout of all of our stars so far. Other than Millie Bobby Brown. I would say even he's a little bit more than Millie Bobby. I think she's more like Instagram famous, but what all, what all has she done? That's like, well, she did. She's like the star of Enola Holmes Holmes. on, uh, on Netflix. She did the two, uh, Godzilla movies, Godzilla King of the Monsters and, uh, Kong, which while they weren't super well reviewed, they were like tent poles. I forgot about those movies because everyone has forgotten about those. Movies. Right. Everyone has forgotten about those th- those movies. But those were like tent poles that, you know, they, they put were. her in the in the center of. Who do you think's the biggest star like 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when we look back at Stranger Things? Who's the biggest star of all the kids who of, like of all had the, the best career kids? I think probably Joe Carey. I do, too. I, th- I think Joe Carey or Sadie Sink are the two that I think right. really find that. I hope Sadie Sink catches because she's done like a little f- few things here and there. She was in like Fear Street um, on Netflix and she was in a muchly watched uh, Taylor Swift music video recently. But I don't think she's been tapped her full potential yet. And I really hope she starts getting scripts that do her justice. Yeah, I could see like a David Fincher, like a Scorsese or I don't know, some kind of prestige director really giving her a part when she's like a little bit more in her 20s and her really sinking into something and like, oh, yeah, I remember she got her thought in Stranger Things. And yeah. Like maybe not becoming like the Leonardo DiCaprio, but like that sort of thing where like, oh, she was the kid of Stranger Things. But now she's really got this depth. Uh, Joe Carey's who I'm rooting for and who I want to get some more meaty parts. And so whoever's in charge of like making his career agents, <laughs> managers, uh, let's let's get on that for Joe. I'm so glad we did a uh, meaning of the show podcast and, uh, you know, took us a quick break from just doing movies. Yeah, I think shows are something we'd love to cover more. If you like this, uh, let us know. We'd love to hear what your response was. And please listen to the episode. Listen to other episodes. If you've stumbled upon this somehow, we talk about a bunch of movies. And so find a movie you love. Listen to that episode. Until then, we'll see you back for the next time of the meaning of the movie. Uh